There's that aspect of it. But the kingdom is here and now. And for those of us who follow Jesus, for, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we are part of that kingdom. We are citizens of that kingdom. And since we are living in this kingdom, it would make sense that we should know how we are to live our life. We should know how, how the king would want us to conduct ourselves. And much of this is found in what is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is where we are spending our time together during the month of September. We are focusing on the Sermon on the Mount to see what Jesus says about life in the kingdom. I introduced this series a couple weeks ago, um, and we looked at the first aspect of kingdom life, and that is a blessed life. We pick up today with the second part of that, and we're going to be talking about the changed life. Now let's talk about change for a moment. There are two changes that take place for Christians. There's this immediate change that happens once we surrender our lives to Jesus, once we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, once we put our faith and trust in Him, confess Him before all men, repent, and be baptized. There's an immediate change that happens. As soon as you surrender your life to Jesus and accept Him, your life changed. It's different now. It's not what it once was. The old is gone and the new has come. We went from being separated from God to being reconciled to Him. We went from being enemies of God to being God's children. See, there's a change that took place. We went from being lost to being saved. The other change that happens in the Christian life is an ongoing change. And this is different than the first change. The first change was a change in status. This is an ongoing change that is making us to become more and more like Jesus. There's the first change. Like I said, it's a change in status. And from that moment all, we're all in a process of being changed to be more like Jesus. All of us are going through a process. I like to call it a process. We're all on different levels. We're all on different stages of this process. If becoming like Christ is over here, there, everyone in this room is in this process of getting closer to that. Some of us may be a little bit further than others, and that's fine. We are all a work of progress, some more than others, right? <laughs> There's a couple things going on in this change. A couple, couple things at work. First, God is at work. God is at work in changing you to become more and more like Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit is convicting you, pointing out the things that need to be corrected. The Holy Spirit is affirming you. The Holy Spirit is giving you power to overcome sin. God is at work. But God's not the only one who has a responsibility in this ongoing change. You see, each of us plays a part in that process as well. We also carry the responsibility. There are things that we need to do in our lives to become more like Christ. See, this is common practice for kingdom life. And this is what Jesus is getting at in the next part of his sermon. Six times Jesus says, you have heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. You can see the change 
verbiage there. You have heard that it was said, do this, but I tell you to do this. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples they need to do something. They need to change. They need to change the way they think. They need to change the way they deal with people. They need to change the way they react in certain situations. Maybe they need to change the way they feel about certain things. You see, the changes Jesus is teaching them um, to make aren't changes from just some random sayings or um, traditions or cultural norms of that day. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's actually talking about the law. You see, you have heard that it was said, God has said these things. He's talking about things of God to these people. These are common practices for the Jews of that day. They have been taught these things since they were little children. They try to put them into practice and live by them. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying something different about those things. Actually, what Jesus is demanding of them is something more than just what the law says. All of a sudden, Jesus takes what they know, the traditional teachings of that day, the law, and he adds to it. And I think he sets this up. Uh, before he starts talking about the six things, he sets this up in, in Matthew five seventeen. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, I think Jesus, he's getting ready to tell them, you have heard that it was said in the law this, but I'm going to tell you something different. But I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill them. And so he's setting that up for the disciples. And he draws attention to six areas of life that call for change. Change he implements actually requires more out of his followers. He takes what has been taught for years and he demands more. That's the change he's looking for. And we, we will see this pattern. I'll actually point it out as we go through these six things. Jesus states what the people already know, what they already believe is true, the traditional teaching. He'll point that out. Then he'll give a new perspective on that. And then he'll give a better way to live. And so we'll see this pattern and talk about it throughout these six things. Let's look at these things a little closer. The first thing Jesus deals with is murder. Matthew 5, 21 through 22 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus takes a law that is fairly easy to follow, right? We got this one down. Do not murder. I mean, there, there are some people that struggle with that, but the majority of us, we, we can handle this one. Do not murder. But all of a sudden, he points it to where it touches everyone. He relates it to something that we all have dealt with. We all get angry, right? I mean, does Jesus really mean that if we get angry with someone, that we are subject to the same judgment? I mean, it seems that's what he's saying here. But I don't think he's actually talking about a moment of anger. You see, the original language actually conveys an ongoing anger. It turns into rage. 
It turns into to th to health issues, ulcers, heart attacks. It turns into maybe crimes of passion, like murder. You see, anger isn't necessarily a sin. It's what we do with that anger. It's how we handle that anger. We all have moments when we get angry. I, I have them. You have them. We all have them. What we do with that anger is, is the key. Jesus says if we let that anger fester, if we let that take root into our heart and become rage and hatred, then we'll be subject to the same judgment as if we had murdered them. He offers us a way out from under that judgment, though. He tells us there's a better way to live. Instead of just feeling good about yourselves by not murdering anyone, <laughs> and, you know, we accomplished one. Woo. He calls us to do something that wasn't required of the law. He says, go and reconcile with that person. And he gives a couple examples of this. If you are giving your offering at the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, he says, leave your offering and go and reconcile with them. He says, if, if someone is suing you and you're on your way to court, do everything you can to settle before you get there, before it gets worse. Reconcile. Reconciliation is the way of life in the kingdom. So that's the first thing Jesus addresses. He goes on to address adultery. And we see the same pattern. He states what is already known and practiced and then gives us a new perspective. Matthew 5, 27, 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus demands more from us than what the law does. He takes something that every good Jewish person takes pride in. Not committing adultery. He convicts them with lust. Struggle they all know too well. He takes something that only maybe a few people have had experienced on some level. And he brings it down to touch every person listening. And the same is true in our experience. There are a few of us today in this room that has probably been, had their life touched by adultery. I hope that number is low. I hope that's not many of us. But my guess is there are some one or more than one person in this room that has experienced that, either by committing adultery or being the one betrayed by it. Like I said, I hope that's not many. But if we're honest this morning, all of us know what lust is and has experienced it. See, we are guilty. So what is the better way of life? Well, Jesus says it's better to gouge out your eye and throw it away or cut off your hand if it causes you to sin this way. Of course, Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's exaggerating. He's saying something that is shocking to get the people's attention. This is not to be taken seriously. If it was, I'd be blind in both eyes and have no arms and just be bumping into things when I walk around. My guess is I'd be bumping into you too because you're in the same state I am. The point here, though, is to cut the things out of your life that are causing you to sin this way. Maybe that means putting the computer in the living room and only getting on it when there's someone else in the room. 
Maybe it means getting rid of the movie channels that you subscribe to through the cable or satellite bill. Maybe it means not having those private conversations with that person at, at work who catches your eye, makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You know, there's a lot of talk and even criticism of people who adhere to what has been come, become known as the Billy Graham rule. Some of you probably have heard this. It's where someone has a personal rule about being with someone of the opposite sex in private. Politicians have made this rule. Christian leaders have made this rule. We, we kind of even adhere to it on some levels around here at PCC. It's a good rule, especially if you struggle with lust. Maybe you do need to set some extreme boundaries in your life. That is what Jesus is getting at here. It's better to go without certain things than to be left out of the kingdom. So he deals with murder and he deals with adultery. And his next topic of discussion is divorce. Here, though, the pattern breaks down. The pattern of where Jesus gives the traditional teaching, he gives the new perspective, and then he gives a better way of life. It breaks down here. He doesn't give a better way of life. <laughs> I wish he would. This is a tough couple of verses. Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's what the Bible says. It's tough to take. This is all that Jesus says about divorce in this text. He deals with divorce a little bit more in Matthew 19. You can read that on your own. I wish he would have said more. I wish he would have explained what he meant by that last comment about marrying a divorced woman. What does he mean by that? I wish he would have given um, even more clear, acceptable reasons for divorce because we can think of, of some more. <laughs> he doesn't. Here's what we do know from this text. There was a law set up in the Old Testament that allowed a man to divorce his wife. He could give her a certificate of divorce. This is found in Exodus or Deuteronomy, sorry, 24. There's nothing about a woman divorcing her husband. That is offensive to us today, but in ancient times, women just did not have as many rights as men. And so there's no, no law about that. Now, there were a couple different schools of thought concerning divorce in the Jewish religion. One school of thought was that a man could only divorce his wife if she had been sexually unfaithful. And that's what Jesus says here. The other school of thought, though, and many rabbis and Jewish leaders believe this and taught this, that a man could divorce his wife even if he didn't like her cooking. Or if he found someone prettier that was willing to marry him. And so this caused a lot of people to get divorced just because they wanted to. That still happens today, doesn't it? Jesus is saying here, though, just because it might be legal doesn't mean it's acceptable in God's eyes. 
Another thing we know about this text is that Jesus takes a stand and tells us one legitimate reason for divorce, sexual immorality. That's it. Yet another thing we know is just how serious God takes the wedding vows in a marriage. This is serious business. When two people get married, something supernatural happens. And Jesus talks more about this later in Matthew 19. It's where he quotes Genesis when Adam and Eve were joined together. This is how he describes marriage. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He talks about Adam and Eve being joined together and becoming one flesh. Maybe in your wedding ceremony, or if you've been to a wedding ceremony, you hear that verse read, the two become one. Something happens there. It's serious business. And it appears that that promise you make to that other person at that time is good for all time. There's something more going on when two people get married. They are joined together by God, and they become one flesh. And this is not something that is easy to get out of. In fact, it looks like Jesus is saying you can't get out of it. He goes on to say if you remarry, if you marry a divorced woman, you're committing adultery. It looks like that promise you made to that initial person is good for all time. And once you remarry, you perpetually break that promise. I think, <laughs> I, I don't know for sure, I think that's what Jesus is saying here. This is hard stuff. Scholars are all over the board on it. And it doesn't get easier because Jesus doesn't give us a better way to live. I really wish he would have but he doesn't give us a better way. With anger, he tells us to go and reconcile. With, with lust, he tells us to set extreme boundaries to keep you from sinning. With adultery, be silent. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess what kingdom life looks like just by what we see in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the rest of the New Testament and even the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians on marriage. I think the better way to live here is the same as what Jesus tells us to do when we struggle with anger. That's to reconcile. Sure, if your spouse has had an affair on you and you want to pursue the divorce, Jesus says that's acceptable. That's, that's an acceptable reason to get divorced. But I also think he would say, if you can reconcile, you need to reconcile. I'll never forget the first time someone came to me and confided with me that their spouse had stepped out on them, had an affair. And in the course of that conversation, they asked me this question, would God want me to divorce my spouse? And as hard as it was for me to say it, because I know how painful how tragic that situation is. I said, no. God, God does not want you to divorce your spouse. He would want you to reconcile. Now, 
course, the affair has to stop. Both parties have to agree to work on it. And it's hard work. But it has been done. It can be done. And people who have reconciled, even through adultery, have some of the strongest marriages today because they reconcile. So where does that leave us today? Well, I want to offer some hope because there doesn't seem to be much hope in these verses. I realize that there are people here today, sitting in this room today, who have gone through divorce, maybe even more than once. I realize there are people in this room today who have remarried. So here's a little bit of hope. The first thing I want to say is this. There is forgiveness available for all this stuff. Jesus died because of stuff like this. <laughs> he died for all sin. And there's forgiveness available. The next thing I would say is that God does not want you to divorce your current spouse to go and reconcile with a previous spouse. <laughs> Don't do that. That only makes things worse. But what you can do today is you can start brand new. And you can make a commitment to the marriage that you're in and make it the best marriage possible. The other thing I would say is to seek forgiveness if you haven't done so already. And start fresh. Start fresh where you are today and don't make the same mistakes again. If you are sitting here this morning and you're contemplating divorce, that's possible. There might be someone, your spouse might be sitting right next to you, and there's thoughts going through your mind that you um, want to divorce. I would say don't do it. Do everything you possibly can to save that marriage. Reconcile. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes the other party doesn't want to have anything to do with it, but do everything that you can to save the marriage. The last thing I want to talk about with this before we move on, and it's a, it's a caveat of what about the abusive relationship? I would never advise anyone to stay in a relationship where they're unsafe. I want to do it. If you are in this situation right now, you need to go somewhere safe. You need to get help. We um, can help in limited ways, but um, you need to go somewhere safe. In my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, Abuse breaks that marital covenant just like adultery does. And God's big enough to figure all that out. He's big enough to sort all of that out. Uh, I hope I've said enough here. I, I, I could preach a whole sermon on this, and maybe we will someday. But Jesus deals with adultery here in the kingdom life. Jesus goes from talking about the covenant of marriage to other oaths. In Matthew 5, 33-34, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Now, fortunately, we get back to our pattern. Jesus gives us the traditional teaching, He gives us new perspective, and He gives us a new way to live. The, the traditional teaching here is, do not break the oaths you made. Jesus has said, don't even make an oath at all. 
You see, oaths were made by swearing on something. Typically, the Jewish people would swear on the heavens or on the throne of God. They would swear and make promises and not intend to keep them. It's kind of like crossing your finger behind your back. When kids, you know, they promise something, but oh, their fingers are crossed so they don't have to honor it. I was in, it was ingrained in me as a child to not swear. Oh, that my parents, my mom especially, could not stand this. It's from this verse. <laughs> she read the Bible and very faithful. And if the words I swear came out of my mouth, man, I was scolded. To this day, when I hear someone say, I swear, I shiver inside. And I secretly judge them. <laughs> It's serious stuff. People, people will swear on their grave or they'll swear on their mom's grave. I would never do that. Because they would be way worse than a scolding. But kids, we do things. We do things like scouts honor, pinky swear. I promise. Cross my heart. Hope to die. You guys know the rest? Stick a needle in my eye. Where did that come from? That sounds awful. We have all these little things of, and I know some of it's playful and stuff, but Jesus, he he gives us a better way to live. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have some integrity. Just do what you say you're going to do. My daughter, Molly, who's 20 now, when she was little and she'd make a mistake, she would promise to us, she wouldn't ever do it again. I mean, it was just a few minutes later she was doing it again. I promise. And I would tell her this over and over again. As a, even as a little child, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's a better way to live. Jesus moves on. He begins to talk about revenge. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Matthew 5, 38-39, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Eye for an eye and tooth for tooth is the traditional teaching. This is a law from the Old Testament. The interesting thing about this is that it wasn't necessarily to make the victim feel better. You see, I read that and I feel like if someone does me wrong, I want to do wrong back to them and I I feel a little better about myself. No, this law was actually there to protect the guilty person so that the punishment wouldn't be more severe than the crime. It's kind of interesting. I thought that if someone poked my eye, <laughs> I'd feel a lot better by poking their eye. That's not why this law, it was established so that if someone poked my eye, I couldn't retaliate by poking both of theirs. You see, Jesus gives us a new perspective. He says, just don't resist an evil person. He's saying, don't respond, don't retaliate. This was a new concept because we want to fight back. We want to feel good about causing them the same pain that they caused us. Now this doesn't mean that we can't protect ourselves or our family. It doesn't mean that we become a doormat and let people take advantage of us or walk all over us. But but Jesus says there's a better way to live. Don't retaliate. Turn the other cheek is what he says. You see, slapping someone in the face was a huge insult in in this time. It is today as well. 
Jesus says, turn the other cheek. What might happen? You might get a second slap, right? But that action may actually be so shocking and so surprising that it stops the person to think for a moment and think about their actions. And notice, this person's acting differently than what I expect. It might surprise that person into changing their ways. The better way to live is to to give the person who is suing you for your shirt, to give them your coat also. Again, a shocking response. A better way to live is by going an extra mile with the one who forces you to go one. All these actions are surprising and shocking. No one acts this way. It's not the way of the world. But the better way to live is to make peace. To not retaliate. And and all these actions, and all these better ways to live, the power shifts. Instead of reacting to the wrongs that are being done to us, we actually have a choice in how we respond. And, And the power shifts. You see, Jesus is teaching his disciples to do something on their own initiative and not do something based on what is being done to them. So it's empowering. Not only that, it gives us an opportunity to show people the love of God. The sixth and final area that Jesus addresses is loving our enemies. Matthew 5, 43-44 says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus states the traditional teaching, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Actually, hate your enemy is not found in the Old Testament. The Jewish leaders had tagged that on to love your neighbor because they assumed that's what God would want. God never told us to hate our enemy. Jesus gives his perspective. He says to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, this would have been difficult for the Jewish people of that day. Their enemy was in their back door. The Romans had occupied their land. But it's difficult for us today too. But when we do this, Jesus says, we will be considered children of God. The better way of life is found in the last verse of the chapter. Jesus closes up this whole chapter with this verse in Matthew 5.48. Be perfect, therefore, Heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but that seems really far out of reach for me. (laughs) It's a standard that is is out of reach. This is one reason why people struggle with the Sermon on the Mount, is because verses like this, they know it's out of reach. Well, let me encourage you. The word translated into perfect could actually be translated to the word complete, and it probably should have. The word that's translated to perfect, many times in the New Testament, you can put the word complete in, and it's perfectly acceptable, and it's actually a little better. And so this verse actually says, Be complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is complete. That seems a little more doable. God is perfect, but He's also complete. He's complete in how He loves He's complete in how he shows mercy. He's complete in how he he gives his generosity. He's complete. And we can be that way too. 
May we be complete in our love for others. May our love be as complete as God's love. May may we be complete in how we show mercy. May, May we be as complete with mercy as God is. May we be complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is complete. Traditions, culture, society, maybe even your family members are telling you it's perfectly fine to hold a grudge. It's perfectly fine to objectify others. We get that fed to us all the time. It's perfectly fine to break commitments or to say whatever people want to hear. It's perfectly fine to seek revenge or to love those who are easy to love. But that's not what a changed life looks like. Jesus offers a better way of life through reconciliation, through purity, through commitment, through integrity, through making peace and complete love. That is what life in the kingdom looks like. These are the of marks of a changed life. Your life should look different today than it did the day you accepted Jesus. Your life should look different today than it did even a year ago. Your life should look different today even than it did last week. And what does that look like? Well, it's probably different from each of us because we're all on this process becoming more and more like Jesus. We cannot just accept who we are and not change. Oh, it's just who I am. Deal with it. That doesn't fly here. We cannot simply hold on to the traditions and the the dogmas that we were taught long ago. I mean, think about how the Jews must have felt when they heard Jesus' words and and heard Him say these things. He's giving them a whole new way of living. In some aspects, it seems more difficult, but actually, it's better. It's better. He took situations that seemed hopeless and oppressive and in turn he empowered them. He taught them a better way to live. Now that brings us to today's takeaway. You've been waiting patiently for this. I realize this for those of you who are OCD and like to fill out your outline, this is your chance. The changed life is not about living a perfect life. The changed life is all about living a life that is different in order to honor God and to show the world His love. That's why we live a changed life. And this takes us back to the earlier part of Matthew 5 that I skipped over. If you're following along your Bibles, you're like, what about that? Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And those of us living in the kingdom, we bring the things of God into daily life. We season the world. We are the salt of the earth. We bring light into darkness. And you know how we do that? By living a changed life. A changed life is not about living a perfect life. A changed life is all about living a life that is different in order to honor God and show the world His love. Our changed life becomes a testimony to the world that we live in. Let's stand and pray.